Welcome to another episode of the Comfort Monk Podcast. Eddie is talking to Paul Rossler of the legendary punk band, LA punk band, The Screamers, uh, brother to Comfort Monk guest Kira Rossler of Black Flag and Dose. And uh, yeah, Paul's also done a ton of music on his own. Uh, one of the, uh, his newest record, I believe Eddie picked up and has been enjoying, but how'd it go chatting with him, Eddie? You know, I went into it thinking we were going to talk a lot about the Screamers, and very quickly I realized the Screamers is just a tiny subsection of just decades and decades of, you know, uh, hard work and amazing music that he's been involved with. Um, We got to talk about all sorts of stuff, Um, a lot of his solo stuff. There was a prog record that he wrote when I think he started writing it when he was 15 years old, uh, that has actually come out in the, the 21st century called the arc. And I actually just picked up a copy of that and it's excellent. Um, but we talked about, you know, his, his first solo period and dealing with SST. Um, I got to pick his brain on the tracks he was involved with on ball hog or tugboat, which is, I think one of my favorite Mike Watt related things, related albums and um all the way through to the 90s and his like prolific solo work in the 90s and then um you know just all of the the bands he's been involved in recently including bands that he's produced band bands that he's record and recorded and uh bands that he has joined up with and it is no small feat uh the amount of work that he's <laughs> he's putting in these days that's awesome man i uh i only realized maybe a couple days ago that he was in a he and mike watt had their own band for a little while um it's definitely worth checking out and then if you it's you know it's been so long since we talked to kira but she mentioned that record uh that he had been working on for so long or that he you know that he kind of composed when he was so much younger and was putting out more recently the arc um, so it's kind of a nice little callback, but I'm excited for this, man. I just ordered, uh, the, I forget the name of the label, but they, there's a small DIY label that, that put out a, I think it's just like a compilation of demos from the screamers. And it's the first really any sort of record that ever came out by them. Um, you know, there's those videos you can find on YouTube and all, but it's just kind of mind boggling that they are so legendary from that era yet. There's little to no recorded output um it's just lot you know it could easily have been lost to time but it's nice that their story is still kind of popping up so i'm excited to hear this interview or conversation if you will let's dig into it thanks guys awesome y'all enjoy I was so into the Sex Pistols and I was in the Screamers and I was biggest Germs fanatic and the Weirdos and but you know I I like barely ever heard the Clash at all and when I did hear them I think they kind of annoyed me and it makes me feel <laughs> and the same with the Ramones same with the Ramones it makes me feel I'm not proud of it I'm not one of those guys that say the Clash suck and the Ramones suck I they're just 
I just missed it, and it's kind of hard to go backwards. Yeah, no, I definitely feel... And they're also both bands that released, like, a huge amount of stuff, and so they really had an opportunity to kind of, like, put out some clunkers, you know? Uh, I mean, they're obviously great bands, you know? There's just bands... Like, you know, of the of the 60s bands, like, I really love the Beatles, I really love the Stones, but I kind of miss the Who. I just... And I am, like, clear that the Who is amazing. I just never became a fan, and there's a difference between appreciating someone and knowing they're good and knowing their hit songs in the radio or whatever, and then just, just tipping over and like, okay, I'm a fan. I will follow you to the ends of the earth. And so, Black Flag... I could almost say that I was a pretty big fan for sure. Yeah. 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 That's funny. I, uh, I actually made the faux pas of, so after Kira was on the show, I did an intro with Dylan for her episode and I just kind of off the cuff said, Oh yeah. Uh, all of the records that she played on are like by far the best black flag records. Uh, and then I forgot that we had just recorded an interview with Keith Morris <laughs> <laughs> it was coming out like a couple weeks later, I think. And I was like, oh man, I really shouldn't have <laughs> taken sides on that one. <laughs> but, it's tough. Man. You really gotta watch, especially with your job, you know, you gotta kiss everyone's ass. It's pretty, pretty hard. I know. And I, I messed that up too, because the last thing I should be doing is insulting. And I'm trying to make it really clear. I am not insulting the misfits. I'm not insulting <laughs> the Ramones. I'm not insulting the clash. I am honestly laughing at how I missed these bands. I just missed them. And I don't, I don't like them. And when I listen to them now, I don't like them. And it's not that I think they're not good. I just, when I was 16, I just didn't jump on the bandwagon. It's, it's my bad guys. It's my bad. (laughs) No, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Sometimes you, you have to interact with something like, at exactly the right point in your life for it to really click with you. It's so true. And I, that's just being honest. And as opposed to, I know I'm supposed to like this, so I'm going to like it. I mean, it took me so long to just be myself and allow myself like, look, these are the things that really touched me deep in my soul that made me who I am. And I'm sorry if it doesn't match up. I know they're not what they're supposed to be. I I know it, you know. Mm-hmm. I know you and I are supposed to like the the earliest Black Flag the best. You know how uncool we are that we like <laughs> the later stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that actually kind of is a good starting place. Um, so you're a young guy you know, in California and, uh, what attracts you to like what you got you playing punk rock for the first time? Cause that's a pretty big jump from, you know, the Beatles to the screamers. Oh, actually what I was really into in high school was, um, more the prog bands like, yes, ELP, Jethro Tull, like the really complicated stuff and I, I wrote a, a 46 minute prog like rock opera that I recorded and put out years later so I was really into, I was studying classical music I was playing a little bit of jazz but jazz really wasn't in my blood and r- rock music got so crappy by 1976 like I didn't really know about the, the cool stuff I, I knew like kind of what was big so I didn't really know about rock music I didn't really know about these Eno solo albums I didn't I mean I liked 
free, but Bowie had even sort of, I don't know, I, I had, um, it just seemed like, so I had, I had decided to just study classical music and, and quit rock music. Um, you know, I, and my band broke up my prog band that was trying to play the, the 45 minute song. So, um, but then, uh, I was kind of best friends with, um, with, uh, Paul Beam, who became Darby Crash later in the germs, uh, back in high school. And I was pretty, pretty good friends with, uh, George who became Pat. And then there was a whole crew of us, Michelle Bell, who became Gerber and Kira, and uh, there's some other people like Pleasant Gaiman was hanging around, and we were kind of all—I uh, don't know—we just knew each other. We were in this special, weird high school, and um, and so Darby, I was super into this prog music and studying classical music, and Darby said, "Oh, this is you. Darby turned me on to Bowie, and we, we became like Bowie. I was like a Bowie fanatic, like." a lot of high school and too and then he said oh this is the new thing it's punk rock you got to get into punk rock and um he played me blondie and the ramones and i was like no i don't get i don't get this at all i don't get this is not at all what i'm so i'm one of those people that didn't hear this stuff in 1976 and go this is me it's like no this is like not me at all but then um so i was going to college and darby started the germs and he invited us to come see them play and I went down and saw them, and they were playing with a band called the Deadbeats that were pretty Zappa, Prague influenced. I mean, they were almost like a they're almost like a no wave band in a way. But there's a heavy, well, I can't say that. I guess Zappa, beef heart, jazz, but clearly a punk band. A lot of the, a lot of the, L.A. punks at that time weren't even sure they were punk rock because they were such great musicians. But they're <laughs> clearly punk. Gazer X was the guitarist. And um, so uh, I saw them and I go, oh, you know, it is possible um, for punk rock to have, um, you know, uh, complexity, like the stuff that I trained myself in. And then the first time I heard the Sex Pistols, I, uh, the artistry of it just, just broke right through. Like it was just so clearly good. And all the LA bands were just so clearly good compared to the crap that was you know, like all the prog bands had put out really, really shitty albums and the California rock was really, really crappy and the Beatles were kind of broke up. It was just a really desolate time, I thought, for music. Uh, or at least there was a good transition period. And um, the early period of punk rock, which was maybe like the Runaways or some of the bands, uh, you know, I couldn't really grasp it was sort of like it wasn't until i really heard the sex pistols um and then i went to that germs show and saw the germs and the deadbeats and then the germs were even better than the deadbeats the deadbeats were incredible but the germs were like a whole new type of like avant-garde theater you know where mm-hmm. the the in-between songs was more important than the songs at that point you know and it was really really great and hilarious and fun and, and uh so um, that's what won me over. Um, and plus, I don't know, I, I was not really, I was trying to be a classical pianist, but I wasn't very talented. I should have probably been taking composition. I probably had, had, was take, got the wrong major. I mean, I really wasn't a natural, I had been too much into rock music to really be a, um, to, to probably have ever been, had any kind of mastery in classical music. But you know, I was sort of learning composition and um, may, I don't know what I thought I was going to do, be a, 
I don't know. I, I can't imagine that I thought I was going to be a pianist in an orchestra. I, I must have been incredibly naive to think that. But I thought maybe I was going to be a composer of some sort, uh, possibly movies. But I should have had a different major. I should have been studying composition and not uh, performance. But I was rescued by punk rock. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, you, you said the thing that uh, brought you to it was kind of the performative nature. Um and was, you know, I know that uh, for the very short-lived, uh, you know, time that the Screamers were a band, uh, there's some pretty famous videos, um, you know, specifically those Target videos, uh, which are super performative. Was that something that y'all kind of mapped out as a group? Um, you know, like what what the the artistic performance was for the day or whatever? Well, I find that a really fascinating part of rock music and art in general. And it kind of is, it's very modern. Like I'm a, when I say I was studying classical music, it's very old fashioned and even jazz is very old fashioned. And the idea for people having an image and what the screamers were doing, that performance aspect of it. Um, I feel like there was a lot of thought put into it, but you have to remember that they had been together for a while. They were all older than me. They'd all... KK graduated from art school. They'd all been in the um, theater in New York and in Seattle. And um, Tomato was more than 10 years older than me. So I was really young. And it was just to um, just to be able to play the songs really convincingly was like my first challenge, you know. But, mm -hmm. um, but there was a lot of talk about, uh, well, not a lot of talk, not enough talk probably, was for them to say, you have to be a screamer. Like, no, I, now that's very hard to put your finger on what that means. You know, if you're in the screamers, you have to be a screamer. And I kind of took it, I guess I took it at the time of was you're either a screamer or you're not, not that you can make yourself be a screamer. I kind of just thought, Oh, I must be a screamer then, you know? Uh, and what is a screamer? It's hard kind of to this day. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what they mean by that, but I think it had something to do with a certain, aggressive intellect possibly uh originality and um modernity like post postmodern there's a real strong postmodern thread through it so i don't know there was no um there was no like handbook for it they didn't give me like a manifesto i wish they would have if they would have i would have probably studied it i there was a certain amount of rebellion for me about um how they wanted me to behave because um a certain amount of them. There's some things about the screamers that I didn't like the uh, vibe with is uh, totally like, and KK too. I mean, nobody was like a hundred percent on this exactly on the same page, but tomato was in the songs. Like I'm going steady with Twiggy and teen beat magazine. And he had this whole super campy um, thing that was really uh, had gone, he'd been doing for a decade, you know, with the, the whiz, the whiz kids and some of his other, um, performance stuff, this, this super, um, like gay theater and campy thing. And then Tommy, Thomas, Thomas, um, Tibbetts, Tommy gear was really into, um, I know he was reading a lot of, uh, like Paris review, like, like, you know, super modern art theory and stuff like that. And he was also interested in, um, Winning Through Intimidation, which was a, like a book. He was interested, sort of approaching it like it was a business or like 
like it was a warfare, like your art was conquest or something. And um, I was still 18, so I still had a strong sense of rock is transgressive and young. And um, like the, like while those guys might have really appreciated, like Tommy might have really appreciated Kraftwerk and Tomato, or they might have spoken a lot about Nina Rota, who did was the soundtrack composer for all the Fellini movies, which is very studied and very intellectual. And I was like really discovering Jimi Hendrix at that time. I mean, I'd always heard Jimi Hendrix's hits, but I was really getting into the albums, you know. So I was into this sort of like more wild and free aggressive um uh expressive side which is kind of anti-screamers but i also thought that i it was okay for me to do that because i thought it melded well i thought it all sort of when you put all the, those different components together like my like 18 year old youthful like look at me i can play keyboards better than anybody else i can play keyboards like Jimi hendrix i mean that's really what i was kind of doing mm-hmm. and that's sort of really that's really against the screamers. The screamers, if the screamers were more about, were like craft work, you know, then the kid being Jimi Hendrix is not, not the same thing. But I, I will say that tomato was very, he would say the same. He would decide beforehand what he was going to say on stage, like what his one liners were going to be. And he would also, he had dances for every song. If you look at the videos, you can see that there's a Punisher be dance dance and there's a vertigo dance. And, so he would have choreography that was worked out. And then obviously they spent a lot of time, every show they would have different, well, when possible, they would have different sort of staging, like they had scaffolding one time and they had sheets of photography paper behind them other times. So yeah, the performance was very, um, very thought out on a lot of, on a lot of different levels. Yeah. It, it sounds like uh, y'all might've approached like aggression from two different sides of it. You know, one being very kind of like academic and studied and one being very like intuitive. Uh, It makes sense that, you know, you as, you know, the youngest member of the group was the one that had kind of the intuitive, you know, just doing what comes natural and what's expressive uh, in order to to be part of that. Um, That that being said, um, did did you and the other members of the band uh, other than tomato have, uh, you know, a part in writing the songs and, you know, composing and stuff? Uh, very, very little. Um, I've got to say, I got in the band in 1978 and most of the music had been written and they, the later songs that they were working on when they met Renee Daldrin were work, working on the population one uh, movie and stuff. Um, I thought Tommy, they had really sort of, I thought that music, that some of those songs were very uninspired. I thought that they uh, really had sort of run out of gas a little bit in a way, which is, um, I think it's a sort of a common thing for that era. Like some of these bands were not musicians and their project, the weirdos, the screams, the germers, the germs and the sex pistols, they were like one album projects. And to do a second Sex Pistols album made no sense. Um, the Weirdos had a really hard time writing, uh, I think, a follow-up album. I think, um, and I think the Germs, there was never going to be a follow-up album. And I think the Screamers, in a sense, were like that, too. They wanted to... So by the time I got in there, most of the material was done. I, I, wrote, uh, I wrote a few things for the um, Population One 
movie, there was a, an acoustic piano thing they asked me to write, but it's not really of great significance. I think a lot, like a lot of that music, and David Brown was there for some of that early stuff too. I think a lot of that music was written very quickly in a frenzy early on at the early days of the band. And I think some of them were, was some of the songs were taken from earlier projects. Like I think I'm going steady with Twiggy. A few of them maybe had been done with um, the Tupperwares, like the earlier bands. Yeah, but that... uh, yeah, by the, by the time I got in, most of the songs were written. The later songs, I don't think, I think they had kind of lost their fire. They'd lost their way a little bit. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, all those bands that you mentioned, you're right. Like, they kind of had such a such a definite goal in mind with what they were doing. It just doesn't even make sense to write a second record. Like, you've, right? you've done the thing that you set out to do. Um, so, with all that being said, uh, you know, shortly... You know, within the next couple of years, the Screamers broke up. Uh, what what was the next step for you after that? Uh, I got in Nina Hagen band, and uh, she came to L.A. She had just broken up with her German band, which which was uh, she made two great albums with. But I could see that that they were very much of a it was an odd mix because she had a pretty uh, well. She's from East Germany, and she had mm. this sort of punk personality and they were kind of a sort of studied almost German prog band so while I liked those first two albums I think she came to America wanting to do something different and she came to LA and she heard about me through a friend and um, tracked me down and uh, this was 1980 and and by summer of 1980 I moved to New York to um, play with her and tour with her and I did that um 1980, 81, up to 83, but I did have some time during that to do the um, nervous gender, uh, like when we weren't touring. Like Nina got pregnant, actually. She was pregnant on that after that first tour from 1980. She had a baby, and um, so I was doing uh, nervous gender and uh, Gay's X's band, The Mommy Man, and what else? I was doing the, the Deadbeats broke up, and I was playing with uh, this, the the next band that the singer made was called Bent. And let's see, what else was I playing with at that time? Oh, I started Twisted Roots. And then, uh, let's see, I quit Nina in 83, got in 45 Grave, and uh, I'm forgetting somebody. But a bunch of those 80s, 80s punk bands, you know? Yeah, so all those bands other than Nina's band were all West Coast bands, right? you know, Twisted Root. Yeah. And, so were you just, you know, constantly going back and forth or how'd you arrange that? Um, well, like were you, were you I living mean, in New York city while, while you were playing with Nina's band? I, I, Nina was actually, we went to New York to rehearse uh, for the 1980 tour. And then after that tour was done, which was, I think we finished that up in about, um, November maybe, and I came home to Los Angeles, and that was when uh, when Darby died. It was at the beginning of nineteen, yeah, the very end of nineteen eighty. Darby died, and yeah, no, I was in L.A. and Nina moved to L.A. too. We were just in New York to rehearse for that for the um, big European tour, which that kind of took up most of that year. But that sort of was like, rather than being like totally devastated about the screamers falling to pieces, I might kind of been irritated with that for a while because I had watched it 
kind of in my eyes deteriorating. They did, you know, I was I was writing my own stuff and learning to record a little bit, and um, but it was kind of good that Nina came along because it was she was still definitely a, a punk band, but she was she was like much she was very much bigger. Like I got to be a rock star for a little while. Like it was like she's playing five, six, seven thousand seat places in Europe. And, um, I was like making a living at it, you know, and it was like, uh, just, uh, something like with the screamers on any of those LA punk bands I never got to experience. So I got to see what that was like a little bit. Yeah. That's really cool. That's, I mean, that's just such a flurry of bands to, you know, both start and become a part of in such a short span of time. Uh, if, if you don't mind, um, going a little more detail. Uh, what was the, the beginning of twisted root? Like, uh, yeah. Okay. So right after that Nina tour, uh, I think we were doing extra work for the movie blade runner. <laughs> uh, <laughs> me and Pat, me and Pat and Maggie and Kara and a bunch. I don't know if Kara actually was doing that, but we were doing this extra work and, uh, I was playing with Gaze's band. I was going, being, playing with nervous gender. I was playing with bands. So I was playing another band called, neighbor's voices and, and my wife Helen she's like why are you playing with all these bands why don't you just start your own band and I was like well nobody that I would want to probably have in the band would want to do it and she's but then I asked I asked Pat and he wanted to do it and I was shocked because Darby had only died like really the year before you know and I know Pat that was really I mean we were all really devastated but Pat especially you know because mm-hmm. he's he's really He's a really sensitive person, but also uh, they were so, they were so close. So that was like really I, I didn't think he'd want to start a band, but um, and I asked Kira and she wanted to, and Maggie and this drummer Emil, and uh, I think now that I think about it, you know, the whole point of that band was to heal a little bit. Like um, I feel like you know there was a there's a movement in literature about a decade later called the new sincerity that David Foster Wallace was talking a lot about. Mm-hmm. And it had to do with once you've gone through the cynicism and the, the studied cool of postmodernism, you know, like, and you realize it, it's actually, you're, you're kind of an asshole, you know, you're cool, <laughs> but you're an asshole. Like, how do you learn how to be like a sincere and kind person? Because ultimately in the end, all that cool punk rock shit led us to, a, the screamers breaking up, and B, you know, our best friend killing himself and dying. And that by 1981, all those things were gone, all those things. And we were, by 1981, I was only 22 or 23 years old, you know? We were only 21, 22 years old. And Maggie and Kira and Pat were a lot younger. We'd already been through this kind of, all this tragedy. And I think the idea of this, of Twisted Roots was to start something that was, uh, I, we still wanted to be cool. We wanted to be great. We didn't want to, that's the, the great challenge that David Foster Wallace talks about. How do you not tip over into sentimentality and, and maudlin like, you know, goofiness. And so like, the thing is every once in a while you do tip over into sentimentality. Sometimes you do, sometimes you fail, but you try to walk the line and just, and just like, Hey, I'm not going to fucking kill myself for your entertainment and I'm not going to get a heroin habit because it makes you think I'm cool. I'm cool without it. You know, and by cool, I mean, um, something, uh, what would be the word? 
like uh, current and that matters, something that's legit. Uh, what is the word I was looking for? Well, you maybe authentic. Use, yeah, authentic is a good one, but but uh, people can authentically all get on heroin. <laughs> um, but, but that your art, your art can still matter that, that, that really all that coolness was a trap too. And this is something that we all learned from, from John Lydon and kick boy face and all these people that talked about not letting people tell you how to act and how to think. And, um, this was us once more saying, look, we don't have to follow, um, you know, the, the dictates of, of what people think is like the um the cool way to do things we're going to be kind of silly and hopeful and upbeat and and try to find a positivity try to um even though any, anybody who knows this knows that we've been through a, a pretty you know already been through some pretty like hard hard stuff so i think that's what that's what twisted roots was i think that's why pat maybe why pat did it because and not all this stuff is always spoken you know but I don't think I had to say it. All I had to say was, hey, let's you and me start a band. What do you think about having Maggie be the singer? And if we both knew Maggie. And as soon as I said, what if Maggie was the singer, that kind of tells him what I'm thinking, you know? Like, Maggie was funny and she was beautiful. It was like, we're going to be beautiful and funny and, um, and we're going to be young. We're not going to let Darby dying and the screamers breaking up make us old and world weary, we're going to stay like, we're going to stay like, like I always thought the difference between the LA scene and all the other scenes was we were young and we, we were young in a vision. We were like, we were, hadn't all graduated from art school. You know, we were like, we were, we had this really naive kid thing, which was, I think really beautiful. And, uh, and we held on to that even after some of the things had started getting a little bit darker. That's incredible um, that that y'all could do that together as like a form of healing and, uh, you know, some kind of, you know, reconcile with with what you've had to to endure um, with that. You don't you don't think about, you know, they always talk about music, you know, having certain, you know, benefits and al- allowing people to deal with, uh, you know, their lives that are listening to the music, but you don't think about the kind of, uh, you know, the other side of it, like what is doing a new creative thing, help out the actual, you know, musicians themselves. It's very, Oh cool. yeah. It's life. It's life and death for us, man. It, it really is. It, like, like at six, I'm 62 years old. And I'm working with mus- uh, musicians every single day in my studio. And all of us, all of us ask ourselves sometimes, why, why do we do this? Why do we push ourselves to write and to, and we like obsessively hour after hour, after week, after week, after month, after month, we're working on this music. And sometimes, you know, we can't help but say, why do we do this? And someone will say, why do I spend all this money on this? Or, or, you know, and the answer is like, we have to, it, it's, it defines who we are and it makes us stronger. It's like, I was talking with a guy I work with a lot in here named Fido, who's a prog artist, or he's, He's formerly, he's not really a prog artist, but his success has been in the prog world, but he's actually doing a lot of different stuff. You spell it P-H-I-D-E-A-U-X. You pronounce it Fido, like a French spelling. Mm-hmm. But, um, and um, we're, we're like, um, you know, it's like becomes, 
we walk down the street differently knowing what we've accomplished and what we're capable of, you know, and there's a price we pay for sure. There, there's a price, um, but we, uh, we hold our, our heads a little bit higher for the, the devotion and the dedication of what we do. But it is interesting. It is talking about being 20, 21, 22 and going, living through that. But because, because Darby was like when Darby died, it was kind of like, well, where do you go now? It used to be wherever Darby was, that was the place to go, be that night. You know, he was so the embodiment and the center of our community. You know, he was, he was, he was it. So when, when he was gone, it was, we were really like at, we were re- really at loose ends. And yeah, like what you're describing, that's how, another way that was something that's more modern. Like I always imagine a singer songwriter by himself in his house with his studio recording and writing his songs. And I slowly, slowly, slowly came to realize that art is, is about community. It's about musicians playing together and playing for each other. And all art is a dialogue from one artist to another artist, which, you know, they teach you that in art school, but it's, I had to learn that, you know, over 50 years. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You've, you know, you've already, you're just now through to the, the mid eighties in your story and you've already listed, you know, a huge amount of, uh, you know, art that you've made with other people, and all those connections and stuff. Um, and I had a couple of questions about some specific, uh, some specific recordings and stuff. If you don't mind getting little into the nitty gritty. Okay. We haven't got to SST years yet. That was, that was, <laughs> that's coming right up, but yeah, well, please. Ask before, questions. before SST, uh, I was wondering about, uh, stealing people's mail and how that kind of connection occurred. Cause I know that, um, Jello was a big screamers fan. I've heard. Um, yeah, he was, we go to San Francisco almost once a month. We would go up there every month and play Midway gardens. And, um, and, uh, if these scenes at that time were pretty small scenes, you know, there were really a couple hundred people. It was starting to grow, but, um, 1978, it was still very small. Like, um, you know, we could sell out five or 600 seat places by 79. We could probably sell out 25 hundred or three thousand seat places maybe even more but but it grew quickly but um yeah jello so you know jello was really we were really very easy to find like mabui gardens if you like the band you go up to them afterwards and go dude you were awesome <laughs> you know there was mm-hmm. no backstage and no bodyguards so i guess jello just uh he just called me they were recording the record he had done the um the first single with gazes i recall and then I just got a call out of nowhere and Jello's asking me to, um, to play on the record. And, uh, I think they flew me up there and, um, I, I, I took one keyboard up there and, uh, yeah, I mean, I was just, it was just a, a one day session. You know? And it wasn't easy too, because, cause, cause, um, I've done a lot of session work and, um, back then I hadn't done that much, but, um, they're fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as long as they're fast. Jello had a pretty specific part he wanted me to play. This crazy little thing. So it took, uh, but I think I, I, that was back when I had just come out of college and I was pretty confident that I could play just about everything, anything. Nowadays, I, I, I'm confident I could play anything because I have MIDI and I can fix it afterwards. 
Uh, yeah, because that I mean that that uh, track that you recorded for that for that song is front and center, and it is one of the more kind of like virtuosic. <clears throat> sorry, I can't say this word. It, it's one of the one of the the songs on that record that has like the most like virtuism, virtuosity. Yeah, <laughs> I don't even. I haven't heard that song recently. Like. I don't even know if you can even hear the keyboards, but I know there's a little solo in the middle and it's just three notes. As I recall, it's just like, but I thought that was, that was like, I was definitely showing like that. I knew understood punk rock because I stuck to those three notes and I didn't do anything else. <laughs> but, um, but the rest of the song, yeah, it was, it was fast. Have you ever heard the, um, have you ever heard the live uh, performance of me with them? I haven't. Oh, yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's an online magazine called Dangerous Minds. And if you, uh, if you, I think if you Google Dangerous Minds, uh, Dead Kennedy's Screamers, you should be able to find the article. And there's the, the actual audio, which I'm shocked that somebody recorded it. And, uh, and I was like dreaded hearing it because I don't remember practicing for it at all. But I am totally loud in the mix and I'm actually know the songs. Thank God. <laughs> mm-hmm. that's like six or seven six or seven songs i don't know if it's live it's live somewhere it might be i think it was at mabue i think i was up there playing with bent and uh and the and we were opening to the dead kennedys and they asked me to come up and play with them and at some point i must have had a chance to uh to actually learn the songs that's awesome i uh i got that record when i was in middle school and uh <laughs> listened to it about you know, a million times. And that, that song is actually one of my favorites. Uh, cool. and I have a, I have an old long-term friend, uh, and we bonded over that song <laughs> way back in the day. So you did not commit a federal crime and steal people's mail. Did you? Of course not. <laughs> I thought that's what you meant when you said you bonded over that song. No, no, okay, I, good. I think, I think she was wearing a dead Kennedy shirt and we talked about it and became friends. <laughs> I'm really glad. Really glad. I saw Joe not that long ago. I don't see him that often. I, I just did a recording with Ray where uh, I asked him to play some guitar on this, for this surf band I was recording, the Balboas. So I talked to Ray and uh, Angelo, probably a lot more than they talked to each other. <laughs> <laughs> I talked to him once in a while. Every couple of years, our, our paths cross. I, li- I like those guys. That's awesome. Uh, I didn't know that they <laughs> didn't talk that much. Well, uh, I mean, I don't, Jello is not singing for um, the Dead Kennedys. They always have another singer. I would imagine the Dead Kennedys said, we're going to do a reunion show with Jello. That would be a lot of money and a very big deal. Don't you think? It seems expensive. Don't you think they would get they would do well if they did that? Don't you think they'd be playing pretty big places? Oh, they would be on every festival around the world. <laughs> so why so why aren't they doing that? Yeah, that's a really good good point. <laughs> I think you're right to read between the lines on that. Okay. I don't know the details. I will be I and I'm not just saying that. I, I honestly don't, but I think there would I you know I played with Duff McKagan from um, Guns N' Roses for a little while, and um, one day he came and he said, "Oh, we just got another one of those fucking offers to tour with the original Guns N' Roses." 
fifty million dollars each for one year tour. And I'm like, really? You know, and you want why? Why don't you want to do it? And they go, nobody in the band can stand to be around Axel even for like five minutes. I'm like, oh, fifty million dollars worth. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd put up with a lot for that. Well, not if you already had fifty million. You <laughs> know, <laughs> so anyway, that's very true. Yeah, cool. Well, <clears throat> yeah, that's really interesting about uh, sealing people's mail, and um, it's cool that he he tapped you to do that because it's definitely, you know, considering that uh, the screamers are such a big part of punk rock history, and don't have you know a studio recorded album or anything. It's cool that you got on another early, you know, kind of seminal, uh, you know, California punk rock record. Totally. I mean, at the time, I feel like Jello probably was thinking, if I can get one of the screamers to play on our record, it'll make us look like we're, or at least I thought he was, that's what he was doing, you know? And the way I look at it now is that he did me a big favor, you know, and I'm glad. And maybe we were just, maybe it's not about favors. Maybe it's about community. Like I said before, you know, we all know each other. And I got, I, I started, I think one of the best things I do is I said yes a lot. You know, I, I know some people are very, very careful. And they're very protective of their brand. And I'm just, uh, I don't know. I mean, I already destroyed my brand so many years ago. There's, there's nothing I can do to make it any worse. <laughs> so, uh, so we got through to 85. Uh, when did you meet? I'm assuming your SST years started with meeting Greg Ginn at some point. When did y'all meet? Greg? Yeah, Greg Ginn was always at the shows, but he wasn't really, he was more somebody that we would laugh at. And, you know, because he was, he would just stand there. He would never talk. And we didn't, he was always there, but I don't think anybody actually knew him. The Hollywood scene was like a bunch of people that we thought we were so glamorous and so hip and so cool. And Greg was from South Bay and he looked really, really just goofy as fuck, you know? <laughs> and I say, I say all this with much chagrin because I have a great deal of respect. Whatever people say, their dislike of Greg, and I have, I have, he never did me personally wrong. He probably fucked over all my friends. I don't know the details. I honestly don't. Maybe on purpose. But I think he's been a great artist. And I think a lot of, um, a lot of money got, went back in SST to promote a lot of stuff that he liked. So I think he, I think he accomplished a lot for, for the art world and for Los Angeles. But, um, but I, you know, I didn't really bump in him. Let's see what happened. Uh, what I noticed was Black Flag started playing slow. I, I didn't really care about them when they were just a hardcore band. They all looked like they were just copying the germs to me or something. Or I, I didn't really get it. You know, it just, it wasn't my thing. It wasn't like the Screamers, the Weirdos. It was like a sort of like dumbed down version of the germs. And I don't know. I, it, I, maybe that was a second wave and I was being snobby. I don't know what it was, but I didn't get it. But they started playing these slow dirgy things and he started they got into this battle with um unicorn records and at a certain point i just uh i flipped and i was like wow these guys i kind of missed the early days but i i became a fan I, I i felt like uh it's the same with um well i mean if they would have just done that music that they did in the early days i would they just be like a lot of other punk bands you know 
Mm-hmm. But the fact that they were, were like really open to mutating and that Greg was really uh, exploring these atonal, like strange chordings and, and scales and like whatever the fuck it was he was doing. So I, uh, I came to become a fan and um, the Minutemen were playing around a lot. And uh, I think so. I guess the first thing I was, I started kind of, I just opened up to it at first. And then I kind of felt like, God, you know, the Hollywood scene is kind of, the Hollywood scene's kind of died out symbolically with Darby, but it's it's sort of, it's it's become augmented by this South Bay scene. You know, I not so much the Orange County scene, which was more like, which was, you know, my friend Rick Agnew, who I play with a lot now, um, but it was less bands like TSOL. I mean, they were, but it was this. There was a more artistic thing going on in South Bay. But it's interesting. All this shit springing up in all these different parts of Los Angeles. It was interesting. Um, I liked TSOL. I didn't really like their songs that much, but I just loved Jack's persona, and so I thought they were great. Um, this is kind of this mutation of 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 out of the Hollywood screamers scene into this as LA kind of expanded and this whole hardcore thing that happened. Um, but the Minutemen were on a lot of our bills. I can't remember if I, um, I got, I honestly, I can't remember if Kira was, I think Kira actually was hanging out down with the SST people and, um, Des, I think Des, she was playing with Des as Des was putting together DC three. And then they asked her, uh, if uh, I asked her, they asked her to be in Black Flag. This must have been about 83, 84. And um, so she told Des, maybe my brother could play keyboard bass, which was kind of a crazy idea on her part, really. I mean, really uh, interesting idea. Kira is just a, a brilliant person. I think that was her thought. So on the first record, I'm kind of playing a, a keyboard bass on a, on a mood prodigy, mostly. And then using the Steiner Parker Synthicon for more like the Hawkwind noise effects, not really doing like any chords or melodies, just bass and sound effects for the first album. So yeah, I guess Kira was kind of like, uh, Kira used to be my kind of my promotion person. She sort of like talked me up to get me in the screamers too, when she was about 16 years old. And I, and then I think she told Des that, uh, that I might be interested in doing it. And I felt like, I loved Des's songs in that first album, but it was also just like community. One, one more time, like the SST community at that point, it was the Minutemen, it was Sack and Trust, and all of a sudden it's the Meat Puppets. And, uh, you know, shortly after it's Sonic Youth and Who's Could Do It. I, um, so I felt like um, if I wanted to be on the sort of cutting edge of Los Angeles art rock, art music, uh, I really had to had to plug into what was happening down there in, in, in the, with the SST scene. What, what did y'all think with, you know, with SST being mostly, you know, all, you know, Southern California bands, uh, when somebody like, you know, when they, they get in talks with, uh, Husker do and stuff like that. Um, did that seem like that close family might be, you know, changing or were y'all excited to have, you know, SST kind of blow up, uh, you know, in the, the late eighties. Well, I mean, you know, 
I, I can't say. Well, I was, I did uh, five tours with DC3. One of them was Black Flag. One of them was with Firehose. I played in a band with Mike Watt. Um, I did the, the Pat Smear album for, um, for Mike Watt that they put out on SST. I did a solo on al- album on SST. But we're talking the years 1983 to about 1987. And I had a wife and I had a baby, two, two baby boys. So I was like, you know, and I'd already been in the screen, I was already been in Nidahagen. So I wasn't like living down at the, at the SST building. You know, I kind of had my own life. Um, and I was also playing with 45 grave at the same time. And I was doing twisted roots at the same time. So, um, I can't say I, I was a little bit peripheral to it. You know, I wasn't like, like the first Hollywood scene, I was maybe even, even the Hollywood scene, I was a little peripheral to it, but I was 18 or 19. So I was kind of like, I was kind of like all in, but by the time I was, by the time the SST scene happened, you know, I, I was married. I had two kids. I was starting to, you know, so I, I don't know how people felt about who's going do. I, I don't know how people felt about the out of town bands. I was thrilled. I thought it was, and I will to this day think that black flag deserves, you know, when they have a stupid fucking rock and roll hall of fame and I get why they haven't put black flag in it. And I'm sure black flag probably wouldn't accept it anyway, <laughs> but I think you want to talk about influencing the course of rock music, the, the fact that Black Flag got in that van and started these tours, they basically built the college radio, you know, the entire college radio uh, industry and a movement and modern rock radio really subsequently to that by, by hitting every college town and every college town had a little radio station that was playing nothing but fucking classical music, I promise you. And, uh, and they were such pioneers at, at getting um at uniting all these people in all these different towns you know we would go we would go to these places that i'd never even heard of like norman oklahoma and i was like oh i get it it's the university of oklahoma there's twenty thousand college students here you know and i'd be like why are we playing norma norman you know mm-hmm. so i thought that i thought sst and their their booking agency global uh, were really really uh hugely influential on um uniting a diy and an underground scene you know that and then you know shortly after that you see bands like you know we would we stayed at gibby haynes's house when we were in texas you know um sonic youth winds up winds up you know getting very popular uh um Soundgarden wanted to do an album on sst and did an album you know before they did the a and m album so you know, and the Minutemen are play, are touring with REM. I mean, so, uh, I mean, I think SST was just like, it's just a phenomenon. You know, it, it all sort of falls apart and ends as a, any phenomenon like that is bound to. But you see it kind of echoed again and again, and you see it echoed in Seattle, and you see it sort of echoed, I imagine, in hip-hop scenes. And um, But I thought it was a really special, and I'm not even mentioning bands like saccharine trust and you know there were so many interesting interesting you know corners of that that era yeah so um during that era what uh what prompted you to do the solo record well um you know that was another thing about sst is like i'm recording all this music 
it was like one of the great tragedies of my life is I'm in this band called the screamers and they never get to put out a record, you know, and I managed to get a, a rec, a single out of the first twisted roots lineup. I managed, but part of it is like, how do you get out records? You know, how do you make records? If you write songs, how do you get people back? Back then it seemed very difficult. And here's this company just making, putting out a record every other week. It seemed like, so, um, you know, I was in, I was in, uh, DC three. So we were getting to make records that way. And I think at one point I had a cassette. I made a cassette of all these home recordings I made that were like the recordings I knew would never get on a record. I sort of had a, a record deal up with a, band, a, a label in San Francisco called CD presents. And they were going to put out a big, um, twisted roots thing with me singing. It was going to be this reinventing twisted roots with me on vocals. So I was working on that for years and then I had the DC three albums working on that. So I'm all trying to, I'm working on them with Mike Watt and the crime and E two, two couple records with that, a bunch of songs I wrote. And I'm like, here's this, here, I'm working on a new age <laughs> album up with CD presents that never got released. I'm like, okay, here's this cassette. This is all this weird music that no one will ever put out, but I think it's great. What do I, you know? So I sent it to Greg. I, I, I said, this is the weirdest music that no one will ever put out. Do you have any interest? And he's like, yeah, let's do it. Well, God bless him. So, um, uh, and you know, it was like some of the stuff was the kind of progish stuff that I was writing in high school. And some of it was like the weird, more ambient stuff. I was experimenting with four tracks at my house. And then there's a couple pieces that I just kind of written, like, I don't know, like the, 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 um, the Peter and the Wolf theme boogie and, um, I don't know. I would just get a four track and I would just make some recordings and sometimes they'd be, sometimes they'd be sort of memorable and sometimes they wouldn't. And, uh, oh yeah, there was a recording I did with Geza, uh, out in Pomona. And, uh, that was the song abominable. So I just, and, and, to, uh, toy fugue. So I just had these, these weird pieces. And then Greg just allowed me to, um, to put them all together and release them. That's awesome. Did you uh, re-record any of them for that record, or did Greg? Yeah. yeah, yeah. He put me in the studio for two days, probably, and we recorded probably six of them. Where we recorded some of them, we just overdubbed drum. One of them, we just overdubbed drums too. But because, um, uh, but most of them, we re-recorded. I had a, a band, and you know, around the same time, I'm taking all these four tracks that I made with Pat. Uh, I used to go over to his house, and we would just write songs. And finally, I've got this whole album's worth of stuff, and it's like, like Pat is one of the most brilliant musicians I've I've ever worked with. I mean, brilliant in the sense of, uh, like, just unique. He's like David Bowie or something. He's so talented. And I'd come up with all these four tracks, and just making the four tracks was this enlightening experience. So I went to Mike Watt, who had New Alliance, and I'm like, dude, this, like, Pat stuff I'm recording is so cool. Do you have any... I mean, he was in the germs. I know he's not really doing much now. And Mike's like, sure, let's put it out. So he put us into Radio Tokyo, and we re-recorded all, all those four tracks and put out the Ruth and Smear album, which then Greg put out on SST. And that's another record that a lot of people don't know about, but that I was... So, you know, SST, like, part of my connection was, like, what can I give, but also what can I get? And what I, what I got was I got to, you know, release four or five or six records that um, were pretty representative of what I was doing at the time. Although really the CD presents record was probably what I was most focused on. 
Yeah, that's really cool that you, you had the opportunity and they they, you know, trusted you enough to let, kind of let you, you know, do exactly what you wanted to do and put it out there. It's uh that's how they were. And that's what some people that's probably what burned them in some ways in the end, because they were doing a lot of weird, quirky little things like the ones I'm talking about that probably didn't make much money back. And uh I mean I never there I never signed a paper with them. I never saw a penny with them. And I I always just thought they were kind of like this anarchist collective, you know. I thought Joe Carducci was a was a was a communist. And I just thought that that was how they were. I thought, I know Mike Watt was like a pretty ardent socialist, I always imagined. So I just figured, you know, then everybody was pissed off later uh, because they didn't get paid. And I was always kind of like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Like, but I guess if those people all had contracts and they didn't get paid, then they have every right to do that. For myself, I'm surprised there ever was a contract with anybody. But um, I was very naive continue to be yeah that's great uh and i i would imagine that for you you were excited to get those records out you know and probably not your main concern was probably not making a bunch of money from them well i don't know i was very naive i thought that like you have to remember i was like playing with nina hagen nina hagen's as kooky an artist as any of these other artists you know and Nina Hagen is playing in Europe and she's, she's playing for thousands of people. And, you know, she's like ordering four meals at a restaurant and taking one bite of each. And uh, no, I, I thought I was going to make a living. I thought that, um, this is what you do if you're a musician, you know, you, you do music and you just be great, you know, do great things and you'll be taken care of. And, um, which I will say is, is been kind of the case, but whether that, that being the case, there was decades where I was, you know, painting houses to, um, you know, pay for food for my kids to eat, you know? So, um, but, uh, you know, I just figured, I kind of thought I'm going to put out all these records and then, you know, people are going to throw money at me. They're all going to send a bunch, you know, they're all going to sell, or at least one of them will. So I can think it was in 1987, I released six or seven records yeah, which is also really, if you think of that as a business model, that's really stupid because you're competing against yourself. But um, <laughs> I put out all these records. I put out the DC3 live album. I put out a crime mini record. Put out the, the Abominable record. Put out the CD Presents record. I put out the Ruth, the Ruth and Smear record. These all records all came out at once. It wasn't my intention for them to all come out at once. It's just they, one took four years, the other took three years, the other took two years, and then they all came out at once. And, you know, crickets. And that was when it became time to look for a job. <laughs> yeah. So what did you do after, after that flurry of activity? Mostly like construction, you know, and I kept a kind of like, um, you know, there was no internet either. And, uh, and after I did that, let's see, you know, I kind of walked away from, um, DC three after the live record. In fact, the live record, I kind of meant as a farewell record. Um, uh, I feel like I'd given all that I could to that. And, um, I, I, you know, I, um, I was writing a lot of music at my house and doing a lot of home recordings. And I started to just get like regular jobs, you know, and it went into kind of a, a like a rough period for, for a while. Um, and in the nineties, um, 
you know, I was working, I had a studio in my garage and I was working, recording just about every night. And then I would get these gigs playing for these different record company bands. The scene kind of morphed into a, um, uh, the late eighties and early nineties, the, the coconut teaser. And it was kind of more the hair metal bands kind of started coming in and the grunge bands and all that stuff. And I, I didn't have anything to do with the hair metal bands, but I kind of was, I was around doing various things and I had some connections. I mean, I knew the Jane's addiction crowd and, um, so that was interesting to watch, but I was working with a, um, a guy named Mark Curry on Virgin, who was a singer songwriter. I thought was really brilliant. And, uh, I was working with Jack's band, The Joy Killer, and I was touring with some artists, Lee Andrioni, and some different artists that were kind of on modern rock radio. But mainly, I was really honestly focused on my home recordings, which never were released, and which that's kind of my project now, is I want to release the home recordings I made in the 90s, which is probably, like, probably the, you know, the richest period for me, really, you know? Like, the, the most wild, creative, you know greatest period where I really like came into my own as a composer and as a songwriter and as a singer and a producer and nobody's ever heard most of it or they've heard little fragments of it. So that's what I'm like. One of the things I'm working on now from midnight till two in the morning after everybody leaves my studios and trying to get those albums done. And it's actually, fuck, it's like four double albums, which nobody will ever, I mean, I'm going to put them out on, on Bandcamp so people can, there's no, and I, it's kind of like, again, it's like putting out the six albums in 1987. Now I'm going to put out four double albums and like people are going to, yeah, but this is, this is, this is how it is to be me. I just do these ridiculous things. I don't know why. That sounds awesome. I'm super excited for that. Well, I am super excited too. So, which is why I do it because I'm listening to this stuff and it was actually I'm listening to this stuff. I have a really good studio now, so I can listen to it. I can remaster it. I can go, well, how is, is this stuff? How does this stand up? And I was like, man, I was so enraged and I was so furious and at pain. I was so lost at the, at the, um, what I had been through in the world and, and where I had wound up and, and the, and the music is so, uh, it's it's like, you know, I still come up, I'm a little pleased with the stuff I come up with now, but I'm writing a song every six months like that. Then I was writing one every week. It's insane. And I, so I listen back to it and I'm just like, I love this. I, it's like it's a different person. You know? It's like I've discovered some really cool artists from the 90s that I had never heard before. I was like, I'm like, listen to this fucking freak. He's amazing. He's incredible. <laughs> It's like they wrote music that speaks speaks directly to you. <laughs> well, it's true. And, you know, the truth is in the 90s, I, there wasn't a lot of music I was loving. So it was kind of easy to feel really inspired. Like, I don't know what is the 90s music that was really great. I mean, Elliot Smith comes along at a certain point, but I think that's the beginning of the 2000s. And uh, I really love Bright Eyes. But what mm-hmm. did I love in the 90s? Jane's Addiction had died and... Uh, I just, I don't think I really connected. I, there was a decade there where I was really felt, I think I was out of step with, I mean, who do, who was I missing in the nineties? Is it like bands like corn and, you know, who are the great bands in the nineties? Uh, for me, it would be pixies, but I guess I was like late eighties and nineties. So pixies and maybe Radiohead and, you know, uh, 
but even 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 the Seattle scene died out. It was the early nineties. It's like like Nirvana and, and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains and Soundgarden. That's pretty early in the nineties. I, I mean, I like that scene, but when I was, I'm talking about basically ninety three to two thousand. I felt really. It was kind of like the late seventies. I felt like fuck. I I was not finding my music, and so strangely, I just made my own. You know, and I I felt. I was really on a, on a mission, you know, I'm just for my, for me, I don't know. I was, I was working a job in the day and making music all night. And it's, it was, uh, and using lots of drugs as well, which was helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, I know you were part of one of my favorite nineties records, actually, um, ball hog or tugboat. Mm-hmm. The Mike Mike Watt record, uh, yeah. I have a what weird question honor. about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I I mean that I think that's one of the the greatest records of all time. Um, when y'all were recording that, just because it's hard for me to wrap my mind around like the cast of characters on that, did y'all record in the same room? Like the songs that you're on with like Nels Klein, did y'all like record that as like? its own separate version of this band for this record. Yeah. Yes. That song, the song I did with Nels, it was me and Nels and Mike. And I, I think, I think it went down with the drums. I don't, I, mm, I wonder if there was a bass. I know Nels was there. Shoot. And what year was that? Um, off the top of my head, I want to say it's 92 or 93, but I could be wrong on that. Yeah. It's still early nineties. If it is the nineties, uh, as I recall, um, uh, there, there was people, it wasn't just me playing over some tracks. I think there might've been a song or two where I did just play over them. And then there was somewhere we played them together. And I do remember that Nels was there when I did it. So God, I, I actually don't have a clear memory of that, except I remember Nels being there. So there must've been drums and bass there too. I think we actually played that. And it's like all sessions like that, very stressful. I mean, Mike is, Mike is pretty stressful to work with. I mean, I, I, I love Mike, but it's not like, uh, it's not relaxing to work <laughs> with Mike. I think in particular at that time, my God, you know, he was juggling an insanely, you know, I think he, I want he probably had the idea and go, Oh man, that'll be great. We'll have all these different people on. It's going to be amazing. Then he's up against the actual logistics of all these people and having to book everything. And, and, uh, I'm sure it was, so it was, it was really like, and I put, I put pressure on myself. Like I want to deliver. It's like, you know, I did tours with Mike. Um, we toured behind the, um, the Dante opera that he wrote. And, uh, and it's hard music and I want to kill it. I want to nail it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I am not, I'm, I'm maybe not as good a player as Nels Klein. I mean, people, uh, or, or, or maybe I just wear too many hats, but I'm just not one of those guys. I know a few of these guys that could just come in and play by ear and in two or three takes, they've just nailed it. And for me, I'm just not quite that guy. I love when those guys come in here and do it. So working with Mike, it felt under the gun, as I recall at those sessions. I was really trying to step up and come through. And you know, I've heard those tracks; they they sound, but you know what I mean. It's like you're you're. I'm less paying attention to the historical import of the moment and all that shit, which I may be partially aware of. It's like, dude, you gotta fucking be 
put your fingers in the right place at the right time and all this <laughs> other shit a distraction like i gotta be not only accurate but i gotta be creative you know i've got to try to bring something special to to something that that you know i'm being i'm being privileged to ask to be asked to do you know so that's like a lot i be, i remember Gaza calling me to asking me to do keyboards for the Le- celebrity skin record and he also asked me he was working he was doing a red cross record and he asked me to play keyboards on it and you know what i remember about all those sessions i was fucking stressed out because <laughs> <laughs> i had to i because everybody else knows the fucking song. When I'm hired to do that shit, I don't know the fucking songs. I gotta fucking learn them, come up with something on the spot. So that's that's Paul's life. <laughs> that's why I'm kind of like being where I'm at now, where I have my own studio and I'm kind of in control. And if people want me to play keyboards on the rec- their record, I say, oh yeah, no problem. Go home. And I will do it when you're not looking. And then I can just take my time and make sure it's right. Because uh, whenever I do it with people looking at me, I never feel like I do it right. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's cool. Um, did did you and... Uh, I, I think you mentioned before that Geza recorded uh, maybe a demo or something for you earlier on. Did I hear that right? Well, Geza... Gaze and I were pretty close. Um, I played, you know, he was the sound man from the screamers. So we toured together and we were, we we're pretty dear friends. And then, um, let's see, I was played in the mommy man and that was, you know, cool. And then there, he, there was a time where he, he got sober. He got, he got kind of messed up on drugs and he had gotten clean and he was living out in, um, Pomona, but he, yeah, he used to call me up to do sessions and he was living out in Pomona and he was doing reviews, equipment reviews, I think for spin, maybe that was his job. And so they would send him all these equipment, like recording devices and samplers. And he's supposed to do a review of them. And, you know, he is kind of just kick. He's just done kicking drugs. And I don't know if you've ever had a drug habit, but when you, if you had a good drug habit, like if you really quit once and for all, you're kind of pretty much like brain dead for like a while. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like you're, you're you lose like the thing that was kicking your ass and keeping you going. So he was, he was sort of vegetated at that time. So you have all this gear and he's like, and he called me one day and he goes, I got all this gear. I'm supposed to review it. And I don't know what to do with it. And I'm like, this is, you know, Paul always really a recording studio. I'll be right (laughs) over. (laughs) So yeah, I went over and we were, we made some instrumental songs and one of those became abominable. Um, but yeah, Gaze and I had this long, we've, our, our paths crisscross over and over again, you know, and ultimately in 97 or 98, he, um, you know, he had a recording studio in Hollywood called city lab with Josie cotton. And he sort of did some record, some other recordings for me. And he finally kind of, he probably got sick of me always nagging him, dude, could you record me? And he finally just was like, here, here's the keys to the studio, figure it out. And that was kind of like, the first time I had a real recording studio, not home recording studios. And so I really, Oh, and eventually, you know, he, it's being an engineer and a producer at our level. It's, it's different. If you can go like four months and make a million dollars and then have go sit in like at the ocean for like a month or something. But like the, to be an engineer is actually a really grueling job because Oh, it's hard to explain. I mean, sitting in a room with anybody for eight hours is kind of hard. And then, um, 
just the concentration, the focusing, and the bringing the best out of people, the politicking, and the it gets to be really tiring. And so at a certain point, Geza was like, I am over this. I am so over this. And uh, he sort of groomed me to take over for him. So I really owe Geza, like Geza and Josie Cotton, kind of my life, because they, um, who knows, I might still be painting houses. Now, I might have a very successful house painting company. Who knows? I don't know. But uh, I don't. I have a very successful recording studio, so I'm much happier. Yeah, I I think you bring up a good point that it's not just engineering. It's also like social engineering, (laughs) you know, it's, 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 and for me, um, I know a lot of people come into the studio and what they love about me is they can tell I care. It's a different interaction because it is very possible to go into any recording studio and show up. And there's a guy pushing buttons who does not give a fuck and can't wait for you to leave. And, you know, and I get it too, because imagine if you're just a guy that you're taking just random people through the door, if you have any taste at all, it doesn't matter whether it's good or not. Half of it's going to be stuff that's just nowhere near your radar. So if you're a rapper guy and you want to record, you're, and you know, one day you've got to record a punk band and you're like, what the fuck? Or if you're a punk guy and one day you've got to record a country band, but you know, so, uh, so anyway, I guess that's, that's kind of the issue, but that all sort of snowballs into having a shitty attitude for some people. Whereas for me, it's all a challenge. I, I mean, to try to be able to, uh, I mean, I think it's kind of a cop-out. If you, if you go, well, I don't like these guys, but they suck, you're kind of just saying, oh, I can't, I can't do my job very well, you know, because really your job is to make them as good as possible, right? So if, if a band walks in and they're an F and I can bring them up to a C, that is a huge, dude, we're all hugging each other at the <laughs> end, you know? Yeah. And I if, mean, if I can take a band that's a C and bring them up to a B plus, you know, shit, from a C to a B plus, I mean, fucking rad, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's and my huge. wife walked in with our dog. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, so that's how that's how I look at it. Is um, but it is there is uh, every person is different, and the thing is, when people come in, it's it's sort of their peak experience, and it's their life or death moment, and it's like. This is like the most important. This isn't like their job. This is way, 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 way more important than their job. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This is like their expression. This is their identity. This is their self-image. This is like, this is their rubber hits the road moment. <laughs> so, um, and they're entrusting it to me. So, yeah, that's stressful. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And if I could just say, I could just, part of me could just go, whatever, who cares? But I'm just not like that. I actually, I actually bond with everybody and we actually all like bleed together. Yeah. I've, I've always gone or I've usually gone for the, you know, home recording kind of thing in the past because, uh, one band I was in, one of our first records that we did was a free recording session for somebody who was like, trying to get some releases under their belt. Uh, you know, and they were like, Hey, let us record you. We'll do it for free, you know, mix and master and everything. And it was so fucking stressful that literally like the next year when we were ready to record something, I like bought a mixer and everything. And I was like, we're going to do this ourselves and we're going to take as long as we need to. (laughs) And yeah, the time constraints are really intense. However, um, that doesn't always work either, you know? 
you know, if you're really trying to record a drum set and, but I, I, I'm with you trial and error and buy your own stuff's a great way to go. You know, if you're not trying to sound like, uh, I don't know, Steely Dan or something, why not? <laughs> yeah. Well, oh yeah. I'm not, I'm definitely not decrying the value of a, you know, of a, a valuable, uh, you know, studio engineer, uh, it's just hard if well, you can't afford studio, it. <laughs> my studio is kind of like right in between. It's like not very expensive, like 50 bucks an hour. It's not some big, huge place with this, with a million dollar SSL board. It's just super functional, you know? So we're kind of like, it's a really nice little niche place. Like that. I don't know what, it, what, um, I mean, it's kind of like radio Tokyo in a way, you know, um, Ethan, what band was he in? He was in uh, Ethan uh, that did all the Mike Watts records. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm not familiar. Oh, he recorded all the all the Minutemen records. Uh, he was in um, uh, that band. They did that uh, Don't Fear the Reaper song. What's that song called? Oh, What's that band uh, song? Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah, he was in Blue Oyster Cult. And like Blue Oyster Cult, you think, oh, they're big. I mean, I doubt that they all got rich, but he got enough somehow to get his own little eight track recording studio. And, um, and it wasn't like this big place, but you know, it was a niche, it was a niche place. So that's kind of like what my place is. It's like, you know, I mean, I mean, nobody has, some people have unlimited money and they can spend whatever they can, but, but here it is actually possible to get things done. And because I'm like, fucking kicking ass going fast doing things really efficiently it's actually possible to it's kind of it's kind of like what you wish you would have had if, if you if you there's the third option the guy gives you the free recording time you buy your own stuff and you and you um and you figure it out or there's a place that's pretty cheap and the guy's really great you know there's that's the third option and that's what i try to do yeah that's the best option <laughs> it's, a, it's a good well Dude, having your own place. Come on, you know what's great about that? Unlimited time. I mean, there's nothing better than that. And I mean that's what I that's what I have for myself, my own place. I do have to spend a lot fair amount of the time working on you guys, but um but to have your own place and uh like I can work after everybody went to sleep, I can work when I wake up in the morning. It's actually probably not healthy. <laughs> <laughs> But, but anyway, I'll survive somehow. Like, I don't see the sun very much. It's like I've taken to, like, every um, day almost, I go and sit on the, I sit outside on the stairs for, like, five minutes so, so I feel sun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, I live where I work. It's yeah, that, that does I'm make a it a little hard to, to balance things. I'm kind of a cave dweller. <laughs> but anyway, I, I like it. Awesome. All right, so it's almost eight. How long does your podcast go, anyway? Uh, we don't have a certain length or anything. Um, so really, well, it, then ask ask the other stuff you need to know. I want to get off pretty quick. Oh, cool. But I, I want I don't I don't want you to hang up and go. Oh man, why didn't I ask him that? So so let's do it. Oh, um, so my last big thing for you actually ties in great with what we're talking about. Uh, I was wondering if there's anything, any records you've worked on, uh, recently, you know, production wise, uh, 
that people should check out that you're, you know, excited for? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, I mean, so there's the people I produce, then every once in a while it tips over and it's kind of something that I became a part of. Um, and, um, I should, I should mention those things first. Um, uh, only, but you know, like people that I've produced, I've been doing all the Jack Grisham and TSOL stuff for the last few years. And, and I feel like what I've done with them, uh, that was a band that probably would have broken up. And I feel like I've coaxed out of them some of their best work. I really feel that. I really truly believe that. So, um, there's so many people like that, but, um, of the projects that really became my own, um, there's an artist named, uh, she goes by Crow Jane and she has a band called Egrets on Ergot is how I met her. And she also sings for a band called Prissy Whip. And, um, this is all part of this LA community. This is the 2000 teen LA punk community. It's, it's fucking awesome. I'm still here 40 years later. And Egrets on Ergot was this cool band. She was a guitarist. But me and her started working on a solo project. It was kind of like a, she was like creatures. It was like, um, you know, Budgie and Susie, and except it was me and her. And we were, we put it out. We worked on it for fucking years. And finally, um, uh, we put it out like this last year. And she's made four videos for it. And it's actually done, done really well. So the album's called Mater, Dolor, Mater Dolor, uh, Dolorosa uh, by Crow Jane which is a little tip of the hat to um, the screamers, maybe. Um, Mata Della Rosso by Crow Jane, which I feel like I'm one of the members of the band. The other band that I'm actually in is um, the Jeton Damone Quartet, which is uh, Rick Agnew and Jeton Damone, who is in uh, Christian Death, and, um, and then um, on, uh, Deb Venom, who plays other keyword. And it's a band that I feel so proud of. We did an album two years ago called Substrata Strip, which... I feel like it's totally like, you know, the screamers never made a record. So like I'm trying to make, I've been trying to make that screamers record for the last 40 years, you know, mm -hmm. to, to make up for that. So, um, the, the, um, this, I feel like the substrata strip album is really, you know, it's like the screamers didn't make record because it's like, how could we ever get across what you're seeing sonically? And, um, because they weren't musicians and they weren't producers, but I've been a musician and a producer now for 50 fucking years. So I can say, okay, I'm looking at the screamers and look at what they look like. Now, what would that sound like? And what, what would be the equivalent of a screamers performance live, you know, just for your ears like that, that like wild creative energy, you know, and the, the truth is, I think a lot of producers are doing amazing stuff. I mean, Billy Eilish's brother, you know, it's fucking brilliant what they're doing. The new technology does all this crazy stuff in hip hop. And they've been doing it for fucking years with the sampling and all this crazy stuff. But we're not really coming from hip hop. We're coming from, we're punk rockers. So it's kind of like, how does punk rock and all this crazy technology, how do you use all this technology and still, and not start sounding like hip hop people. So that's kind of, I think, um, both um, the Crow Jane Mother Dolorosa album and um, the Chaton de Bone Quartet um, Substrata Strip record are these crazy, powerful oral statements. Um, I work with Josie Cotton. She's my partner in this um, 
studio and we're constantly working on stuff. I mentioned Fido Xavier earlier. Uh, you know, I work with an artist named Harry Cloud that I think is a really, really, truly unique, bent and weird ass individual, like a one in a one of a kind artist that people will say, oh, maybe I heard Paul talking about this Harry Cloud guy and they'll go check him out and they'll either go, what the fuck? What is this? Or they'll listen to, they'll watch, you know, he like makes videos, like tons of videos on, of all of his songs. Or they'll reach a point where, like, everything that's not Harry Cloud will just seem kind of normal and predictable because he's <laughs> so off the wall. He's, like, so, so strange. And yet, um, so I think he's a really specialized. I mean, I've been working well, on an album with Kira for years and years. And I'm trying to convince her to release, but she doesn't give a shit. And, but I still think someday I'm going to get her to. Uh, and then I'm working on myself constantly. And I have now just insulted probably 500 great bands that I should have thrown into this <laughs> conversation. Uh, and I feel terrible, but you know, if you go to kitten robot Facebook page, I post the shit and just keep scrolling back, just keep scrolling back, scrolling down and go back through. Cause I try to post all the different peoples that, that come through here and you'll probably like, you might hate nine out of 10 things on there, or you might like, like nine out of 10 things on there. But think about it. If you hear 10 songs and one of them is a new artist that you've just discovered that you're now a fan of, then that's, that's not a bad batting average. Yeah. Well, Paul, thanks a lot for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time. And it was a blast talking to you. It was a blast talking to you. Let me know if, uh, you know, if there's anything else I can do. Sounds good. We'll keep in touch. Cool, Eddie. Talk right. soon. Have a good one. Bye. You too. This has been a Comfort Monk production. <laughs>